0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me this week are Sharon Kamathi, my editor at Fintech Futures. Hey. And Nina Mahanti, who wears two hats with uh, with Business Development at Klarna and as co-host for the Breaking Banks podcast.
1: Hello. Lovely to be with you today.
0: Lovely to have you on. Uh The topic for today's podcast revolves around financial inclusion in 2020, something we've been covering extensively on both FinTech Futures and in the Banking Technology Magazine throughout the year, but especially in October. Uh, Before we get there, though, we're going to chat about some big news, uh, big numbers in news this week, Uh, as we always do. The past week, we've looked at the news available and seen which big numbers are out there that have caught our eye. Uh, Nina, you're our guest, so you get to be up first. What's uh, what's your news in numbers story?
1: So my news in numbers story is 12 million UK adults have now been classified as low financial resilience as of July, according to the Financial Conduct Authority. Uh, and that is just, wow, that rocks me to my core quite a bit. I, I think about... Well, especially since today we're speaking about financial inclusion, where we were before this year and the need to serve the underbanked and and low income. But after coronavirus and what is going to be undoubtedly a rough winter, that really worries me as to what recovery will look like more broadly on a macro perspective, but also for just individuals and families. Um, So really, really sad to see that actually today.
2: Yeah, I do think it's it's quite saddening to see how many people are struggling financially from the effects of the coronavirus pandemic, and it's not only just these twelve million people, but also the financial victims of this pandemic could end up seeing their credit scores suffering for up to six years. So that's according to the independent credit broker Totally Money. Um, so they issued a report that um, just came out this week, um, pretty much off the back of the fact that the UK is currently on its way to seize its blanket protections on the 31st of October. So, that's this week. Um, And it's going to see more than a quarter of a million people move from their payment holidays to repayment plans. Um, And it also coincides with the stoppage of the government's furlough scheme, which will be replaced by the jobs support scheme. And that's also a come under scrutiny because the incomes remain considerably low um, on that scheme. So now lenders are contacting 323,000 borrowers next month as protections will stop on mortgages, credit cards, and loans. So late payments and defaults will remain on credit files for six years, which I genuinely didn't know. Um, And it's going to make it super hard for people to get accepted for mortgages and credit cards, mobile phone contracts even paying utility bills by their direct debit. Um, and let's not forget that this uh, whole situation was brewing up because of 10 years of austerity in the UK as well and wage stagnation and also high rents. Um, And now we get the Bank of England flirting with negative interest rates, which will only hit uh, people in my age bracket, so millennials and also the people below us, so Gen Zers, um, who will no longer be able to save in order to get on the property ladder or have any uh, sort of, you know, big assets uh, because of the lack of generational wealth that we have. And also that report did hint at it hitting people who were Black, Asian, and minority ethnic quite a bit too Um, and that's I know a topic that we're going to dive into later so I don't want to steal too much attention from that but yeah it is quite saddening um, about all these stats and it seems like the pandemic has just sort of tipped this over the edge Uh, but what do you think Alex?
0: Yeah it's it's definitely one of those stories that you you see coming in the news but it's one that you never really want to see Um, I think the onus is without wanting to turn this into a podcast about the government. The onus is on the government to uh, try and s- sort of mit- mitigate that that damage, but the, the focus is also on the financial industry. and I think for, for, my, for my money, uh, now, more than ever is a time where uh, companies in the financial technology space can step forward to help these people out. Uh, In our report, uh, we had something from Anish Varma from uh, UK credit reference agency, AIR, who said that uh, uh, there are problems for lenders because the effect of it on borrowers is unpredictable. Um, There'll be people falling into financial difficulty. Uh, The way they assess whether people are credit worthy is difficult because of the, the change in circumstances and the traditional data sources aren't dynamic enough. Uh, and, but uh, if, if there's anything that some, uh, companies in the sector have shown, it's that, uh, traditional sources of data don't have to be the way you can judge loans or the way you can help people who need access to money and have the ability to pay back those loans, especially, uh, and I think it'll be on the FCA as well to, uh, really turn around and help out the consumer in this because it's, uh, it's, it called for firms to be flexible and offer, uh, and I quote, a full range of shorter and longer term options, uh, which could include suspending, reducing, waiving or cancelling interest charges. But I, I think it really comes down on two parts for me that regulators need to ensure that that lenders don't uh, essentially just accept defaults uh, and sort of just chalk it up as a loss and try and help the people that they have been lending money to. And also, I think it's down to uh, the lenders themselves to sort of uh, find new ways to, to help people out. Unfortunately, for everyone who was hoping that I wouldn't bring another regulatory news story, uh, they should probably just mute their podcasting service of choice now. Um, my number is 11.39 billion. Uh, that is the total amount of fines paid by banks globally so far in 2020. Uh, however, there's another number in there, which is $8 billion, which is the number contributed, if you want to use the word contributed, by US banks Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, and JP Morgan. Uh, now of the three, Goldman is still feeling uh, the aftereffects of the 1MDB scandal. Uh, it paid nearly $4 billion early this year to finally end the probe into its dealings in Malaysia from back in 2015 uh US officials called its role in that a massive corruption scheme and that's a quote from them and not me so don't come after me Goldman Wells Fargo settled on a 3 billion dollar fine for its fake account scandal which lasted from 2002 to 2016 and JP Morgan copped a nearly 1 billion dollar fine in September for rigging markets between 2008 and 2016 now if you're wondering who rounded out the top 10 uh there's Westpac Westpac Bank Hapolan Swedbank, Citigroup, Deutsche Bank, Scotiabank, and TD Bank. Uh, now, I know last week we spoke in length about the size and necessity of anti-money laundering fines and where they should be levied. Um, but what kind of strikes me about the huge ones received by those those three US banks there is the one, the length of time they usually refer to. Uh, You know, 14 years for one, eight years for the other, and the length of time it's taken to process and then find these major banks. And it's set me wondering um, just what banks may be fined for in the future for transgressions during, as we've just spoken about, the COVID 19 pandemic. Uh, We've already reported on at FinTech Futures about JP Morgan having to fire and censor employees for creating fake customer accounts to receive uh, business relief funds and uh when i spoke about the uh, when we reported about the missing um for, uh, furlough payments in the uk especially as well there was a, a propensity for fraud there and where things might go wrong so uh, it got me to thinking where maybe in 5 to 10 years time we'll be looking at a, a table of fines due to just the coronavirus pandemic but um what do you think Sharon
2: Yeah, we do love speaking about um, anti-money laundering on this podcast, that's for sure. Um, We talked about this with Tudor as well from Typing DNA in our last podcast um, about AML and compliance breaches. Um, And these are serious concerns that the industry, I think, should be taking a little bit more seriously, not just with the fines. Um, But the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, the ICIJ, um, who are known for the FinCEN files leaks alongside BuzzFeed, um, they pointed out to six money laundering reforms that experts say need to happen right now. So, number one was end too big to fail for U.S. banks and bankers, tighten suspicious transaction reporting requirements, empower bank compliance officers, which is a big deal because – from my own experience, I know that was something that was quite hard to do when you are talking with sales and traders and they just want to get the deal done. But there's so many checks that you need to do. And if you don't do them, then you'll end up being liable. But they often do just take the brunt of it. They take a lot of flack. So I think empowering compliance officers with a lot of safeguards and protection would be good. And also whistleblowing, I think would be uh, some good protections need to put in place. But aside from that, they also had end tax havens in America. So they have jurisdiction Such as Delaware, Wyoming, South Dakota, um, they have easier abuses um, with tax havens, uh, as much as places in the Caribbean, like the Bahamas, Bermuda, or the BVI. Um, And another one was close the United Kingdom's giant secrecy loophole. So apparently here in the UK, it's a hotbed of money launderers. So there's one estimate where it had more than 90 billion in dirty money being laundered each year through the city of London. So, you know, we're not uh, exactly a, a pillar of, you know, doing things well here as well financially. It's something that we need to clean up. And and also the last suggestion was to harmonize Europe's primary responsibility for supervising and enforcing these anti-money laundering laws. Um, Nina, I can see you are keen to go. Uh, what do you think about this? Well, I
1: just think it's it's really interesting that, you know, every report that gets written, every write up, every white paper, there are these actionable items and yet we rarely ever see them put into place. Everyone says, Hey, we should do something about that. And then we rarely ever actually do that. One thing though, that you mentioned was, um, I'm I'm laughing because I'm the type of person who would do this. I sat down uh, with BBC Panorama and watched the the little mini documentary, the episode on the FinCEN files, um, and I was shocked. I mean. I work in fintech. I'm I'm surrounded by bankers all the time and people who work in financial services. And I kind of knew that this, there was probably a money laundering problem in the city, but wow, I had not appreciated to what degree. Um, and also just great shots of, of the host kind of biking around an empty Canary Wharf are very much worth <laughs> that 30 minutes of your time.
2: I <laughs> guess we can hop on to, to my story.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, go for it.
2: All right. Well, I've got a bit of positive news amid all this um, sadness. Uh, so, there's $48 billion, and that's the total remittance to sub Saharan Africa last year, according to the World Bank. Um, the coronavirus pandemic is actually fueling a boom for African focused money transfer companies. So, this analysis came from Reuters, in spite of predictions from the World Bank that it would actually hit a prehistoric low of 20% to $445 billion. So, they thought they would drop by that much in remittances to poorer countries this year because of the pandemic, but it looks like it's the complete opposite that has happened. So, they are focusing on working uh, African diaspora people who can safely attest that they can send uh, funds to their families. Um, so, there were some remittance uh, stats that I have here um, where uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, um Aside from the $48 billion last year, according to World Bank, the experts were saying that the figure tells only part of the story as travel restrictions and flight cancellations have made the pandemic-era labor markets particularly sticky. Uh, so, last year, um, remittance flows to low- and middle-income countries overtook foreign direct investments as the largest source of income capital. Uh, there was Mukuru, So they focus mainly on African remittances, um, and it's mainly by cash and groceries. So they saw roughly 75% acceleration in growth compared to last year. Um, And according to the Kenyan central bank data, remittance to Kenya was up by 6.5% the same period last year. And remittance inflows into Zimbabwe were up 33% through July. Um, And online Remittance company World Remit reported last week that transfers to Zimbabwe by its service had doubled over the past six months and ASIMO actually saw nearly 200% increase um, in new customers um, and it's to regions such as Nigeria, Ghana and Kenya. So it's looking good for Africa so far. Um, What do you think about it, Nina?
1: Well, I was was kind of reflecting on this because um, I think you and I spoke about this before, I have been doing quite a bit of research about migrant groups and refugee groups. And so I kind of fell down the rabbit hole that is remittances. And when the pandemic really struck and hit worldwide, I did start to wonder, are remittances going to go down? And I think everyone's maybe gut reaction is, oh, actually it is going to go down. But um, upon reflection, I think a lot of what you said is when you actually think about it is logical. Um, And I think what's also interesting, and this is just pure conjecture. I've not, you know, really deep dive or interviewed anyone for this, but I think that a lot of the times um, migrant populations make up a majority of essential workers in a lot of the Western world. So they're still working, Um, And still bringing in um, some sort of salary or, or wage. And so probably are sending that back. But also because of the accelerated nature of the pandemic, where it was just all hands on deck everywhere. So in places like France or Spain or Germany, you had qualified workers who before... Uh, weren't allowed to work as certain things or would have had to requalify or suddenly being called up to be nurses or you know any type of technician type of work and so because of this you've got more people working and therefore able to send more back but i think another thing and this is just something as the daughter of an immig- of two immigrants um there is something about the altruism of migrants and when things are really bad around the world or or back home i feel there is this urge and i i think back to when my father would send money home to my grandmother um and and his family when things are particularly bad actually migrants seem to and this is just anecdotal data um double down and and send more and there's a big part of trying to provide best for their families wherever they are in the world. So, I think based on that when I thought it through I was like, oh actually maybe it does does make sense.
0: Yeah, and I think there's we've seen despite, you know, the World Bank's uh prediction. We've seen it go up almost uh, across the world, in fact. And I I think what, Nina, you were just talking about really really factors into it. I mean, we've seen witnesses going up in Mexico by 9.4%, according to the Mexican Bank. Um, Pakistan's had a record increase, uh, Vietnam and the Philippines as well. Um, And I I think, yeah, I I agree completely. Migrants, um, uh, they tend to be employed in essential services, uh, agriculture and construction sort of come to mind. Um, and uh, according to uh, data from Brookings um, in Europe, uh, migrants account for almost a third of all essential workers. Um, we've seen some com- countries in Europe uh, implement regulations to make it easier for uh, undocumented workers to get access to services or even offering temporary citizenship in some cases, like in, in Germany. Um it, all of this sort of makes it easier for, for migrant workers to, to keep making money and keep sending that money home and I as well the altruism is what well, I think is a major factor um, it, that's the what is at the heart of remittances is you know sending money home to help your family and I think in cases like this people will want to send even more um, I think there's there's in some places that there could be some caution here because um, we we may be experiencing. I've, I've read around this, and some people are thinking we may be experiencing a uh, sort of in quotes, artificial bump as perhaps migrant workers transmit a lot more money home uh, in advance of them going home because work is drying up where they are. Um, but then also, it's also the pandemic has forced people to make digital transfers of pretty much all kinds. So. Um, I think we will see that, that, as with most cases, we'll see the data sort of balance out over the next few months or so. But I think it's it's definitely a lot better than a, what a lot of people in the remittance industry were hoping for. And well, I mean, too long may it continue, I say. Now we move into part two of the pod. This is where we open up the discussion on a specific industry topic or theme. Uh, As we mentioned at the top, we're going to be talking about financial inclusion in the industry in 2020, what's going well, what's going poorly, and whether the figures being thrown about by some banks are just PR. Before that, however, uh, I'm going to give Nina some time to talk about those two hats I mentioned she wears earlier, Klarna and Breaking Banks. So uh, Nina, why don't you introduce both of those roles and yourself a little bit.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So thank you again for having me on. Always a pleasure to chat all things fintech. Uh, So yes, you're right. I do wear two hats. During the day, I uh, work with the incredible team at Klarna, the Swedish fintech. I believe we are now the most valuable privately held fintech in Europe, which is always lovely to hang your hat on. Um, so love working with such an innovative team and really devoted towards making payments and shopping smooth with three O's. Um, and then at night, I moonlight as a co-host for the Breaking Banks Europe podcast. Um, and on that, we discuss all things fintech, uh, across the continent, so looking a bit further afield than we tend to be a bit navel-gazing or I do at least, uh, to what's happening in London. (laughs) I forget that there's a world outside the M25 and so it's always nice to look um, out onto the continent to our friends up there and see what is being built, uh, the challenges that are being tackled, the ecosystems that are being built and the investors and who we can speak to there. And, you know, as someone who is just, uh, unabashedly nerdy, I really love wearing this hat because it just gives me so much access to interesting people, interesting topics, uh, opening my eyes to, to different things. So, Hopefully I can, I can provide perspective, uh, from both hats. I get to wear both hats today.
2: Nice. It's always great to have multiple hats to throw on. And we're excited that uh, you're here as well as a fellow podcaster, too. Um, So, yeah, we're going to dive into financial inclusion, which is one of my favorite topics to discuss. um, Since you mentioned you've been doing a lot of research, uh, specifically around the most vulnerable people in our communities from women, people of color, and refugees. So, can you expand on any specific findings you've seen? What's been the most shocking bit of research?
1: So the past year or so, um, I have really drilled down um, into looking at what we often refer to as the bottom of the pyramid. I think fintech has an incredible promise and an t- incredible potential to fulfill this uh, This opportunity to to really serve everyone and truly democratize financial services. But as I said, with the navel gazing and staying within the M25, so often I find myself, um, you know, seeing the same sort of services being offered, which is what prompted me to look into really the people who are struggling, whether that's people that um, are receiving universal credit um, or if it's people who are asylum seekers or refugees. So the past uh, six months or so, I've really done deep dives and even been doing one-on-one interviews with asylum seekers. And I have been really shocked actually at um, the the way that financial services are not accessible to people from lower incomes. Um, purely because of a lack of a credit score. And I think this is one thing that I've really come to hold near and dear to my heart. Um, I've even read a book about credit scores because it's just been something that I cannot wrap my head around as to why this one three-digit number can have so much power to determine our lives. And so... I have arrived at the, the conclusion, a personal opinion, that credit scores are actually a judgment of morality and they do not actually dictate someone's credit worthiness or ability to repay a line of credit. Um, the reason this is all super important is because, you know, we we love to point fingers at payday loans and these super high interest loans that are being given out. But then we look around and we don't really see other options for people who are low income, who maybe have a credit score, but it might be what is considered a poor credit score or those who don't have a credit score. And this could be even people who are just young people who, you know, the paradox of credit scoring is like, you've got to open up a line of credit in order to actually start building a credit score. But how do you get the line of credit without having the credit score? It's a chicken and the egg type of situation. Um, So I've been doing a lot of research on that. And it's what's really interesting to me, especially with asylum seekers, refugees, migrant populations in general is um, the idea of a credit score is very Western uh it's you know we we say sometimes the us sneezes and the uk catches a cold i think the biggest markets for credit rating agencies are very much the us where we are a very credit dependent country and market uh but increasingly so in the uk and when i speak to asylum seekers or refugees they just have no idea what i mean when i say credit score and that's something that i've come up across uh, come across so many times now and obviously, this kind of ties into what we were talking about earlier in terms of um, financial literacy. They're just It's just so frustrating sometimes because for them to not know what it is and not understand how it's calculated, and let's be honest, how many people that you pluck off the street would be able to tell you exactly how a credit score is calculated, um, don't understand how integral it is for them to receive fairly priced credit. Um, is is a really big problem, which then drives people to have to go to these super high interest loans so that was something I was really shocked to see and people who were paying back loans that they had taken out years ago just because of the compounded interest over time so that is something that 's been really shocking um, on the flip side though and i I try not to always be doom and gloom um What was really surprising and lovely was with specifically asylum seekers and refugees. Um, Asylum seekers are not, uh, well, they legally cannot open a bank account in the UK. But um, for refugees that have received their their right to remain in the country, um, it is amazing that fintech has stepped up to the plate and is really looking at providing these financial services, or at least a basic bank account. So I'm thinking of the likes of Moniz, Monzo Revolut, Starling. Um, A little anecdote that I love telling people recently is I interviewed an asylum seeker who had to flee from Eritrea. Um, Wonderful young man. He had never had a payment card in his life in Eritrea, they just dealt completely in cash where where he lived, and when he fled, he came to the UK, was granted his his right to remain, and the first ever bank card he has ever had in his life is that Hot Coral Monzo card, and that just made me smile. He said, "Oh, this is so great! This app is so easy to use," and it just I was chuckling, thinking to myself, "Could you imagine if we all grew up thinking?" That this is what banking is and this is how easy and straightforward it should be. So, um, that has been really wonderful to see as well.
2: Well, I'm glad that it's not all just doom and gloom as you mentioned, and there <laughs> are some bits of, you know, enlightenment in all of this, especially with, you know, fintech and its role within it. So that's that's pretty cool mm-hmm. uh, t- to know that it's actually having an impact. Um, and financial inclusion also goes hand in hand with financial literacy, either for the elderly or non-digital natives to first-time investors and wealth management management. So from stocks to pensions, what initiatives or companies do you see in your research that help with both, especially for marginalized
1: groups? You know, that's a really, that's a, that's an interesting one because we really have to segment the population when we think about wealth management, um, or, or investing in general. I think when I talk about bottom of the pyramid, um, or the most underserved unbanked It kind of goes without saying that a lot of people, especially if they're living on universal credit or receiving universal credit rather, are um, not in a position to be necessarily investing. And I think um, there was a report that said that uh, the average low income family has about £95 in savings. Um, as compared with high income families who have about sixty three thousand pounds in saving, uh, and that's that income inequality is something that I'm sure we can discuss later. Um, but this was before coronavirus as well. So, you know, there is the bottom of the pyramid that I keep referring to that is really just trying to get by and and make that paycheck. Uh, last until the end of the month type of thing um, and make sure that their children are fed and all that. I think what has been really interesting to see um, is initiatives to court a different demographic um, and specifically this is speaking about women. So what I have loved seeing as a woman is that there seems to be a shift. And I can't pinpoint exactly when it started to happen. I like to think there was the wind started changing, you know, when Elvest in the States was launched and, and when Anne um over at Starling, they launched a great campaign um called Make Money Equal that was really highlighting the way that women are spoken to about money and how it is so different to the way that men are spoken to about money. And um, with women, it's always, we're always being encouraged to kind of like splurge or like treat yourself or like, um, guilty pleasures, that sort of language. Whereas men are often targeted for things like even, even buying a high-end watch is referred to as an investment, right? Um, uh, and so this was a really interesting campaign that they did and they pulled together some research on that while at Starling. But it seems like, you know, that was a few years ago since then. There has been this shift where a lot of asset managers have realized, oh, wait, actually, we've got half the population that also have some money. Maybe we should start chatting to them. Um, and I have loved seeing, um, lots of women kind of step up to the plate, whether they are, um, doing so in actual like fintech world and building things like, um Romy Savova over at Pension B or Anne, of course. Um, but also just women adding their own flair to it, where we see the rise of the money blogger. Um, and, and I'm sure you've you've seen a bunch of those as well. You've got um Alice Tapper at um Go Fund Yourself, you've got Claire Seal of, of My Frugal Year, um Emily Belay of Vespod. And it's been really refreshing to see women just talk about money and talk about the debt that they have and how they're paying it down. And that's Claire's whole thing at My Frugal Year is just like paying down this debt that she had accumulated. Um, Emily has done a wonderful job of of bringing together resources for women to just talk about investing and making a plan. It's really interesting because um, I'm quite civically active for those that know me (laughs) Um, and with the U S election just coming up next week, you know, everyone just talks about make a plan, make a plan, make a plan. And it is true that when you make a plan, you are more likely to actually do something Uh, which is why, you know, all of these um, political operatives and, and campaigns are always encouraging people to make a voting plan similarly i have loved seeing people say make make an investment plan make a savings plan um i've even seen like just not money bloggers but influencers just say this is just talk very openly about money how much they make how they pay down their debt how they invest um i love as well that and I can be critical of them sometimes but I'm going to be fair to them today and you know money farm nutmeg wealthify wealth simple um here in the UK have done a really great job of making investment accessible um for people at a much lower amount than it typically would uh, would cost someone to get into the markets and I think this is really important because you know stereotypically but just we it also shows in the data that women tend to be more risk averse and so a big part of of investment is just that you are taking on risk and so a lot of times people are so worried like oh my gosh if I put, if I've managed to save up 10 grand and that's taken me a few years to do so, the idea of putting it into the markets when it could all go away is something that really scares people. Um, so I've loved seeing the combination of the accessibility to maybe put in less, um, but then have this combination of of social media or influencers or bloggers kind of say, you know, take that first step, get into it. Um and And also always promoting this idea that you are investing for long term returns. um Emily talks about this a lot over at Vespod. She's constantly saying like uh, even Warren Buffett says that the best thing for an investment is time and just leaving that money in there to sit there and just be patient and I think I saw recently there was a study that showed that um people that uh, try to time the market, you know, and like pull things out, move things around, end up losing 3%, um, more than someone who would just let it sit there. And so I think that's really interesting. So all of these things coupled together have, uh, from very strange places, because you have like the actual FinTech world stepping up to the plate and saying, we're going to make investment more accessible. But then, you know, influencers or bloggers using their blogs, using Instagram, using Twitter to get out this um, this topic of just talking about money is really wonderful. And so for those that are in that privileged class where we do have money at the end of the month, where we are able to save, where we do have enough to put into investment, I've been really pleased to see this um, across the board in the UK.
2: Yeah, and previously on the podcast we were talking about women and women have been hit super hard by the coronavirus because of the the furloughs, childcare maintenance, um, mm-hmm. especially when schools are off during the outbreaks or lockdowns, or you know just because they're they're off. Like we're going to be having next term as well. Um, their break. And I think it's this week or the following week. So they're being super hit by all these different factors. And they also get hit by redundancies too. So what long lasting effects do you think the coronavirus crisis has on women's careers? And what can women do to better protect themselves financially in this crisis? Is it an individual initiative or something that should be top down? So government and regulatory led?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think about this every single day. Um, and I, I mean, I am a single childless woman, you know, who is extremely privileged. I still have my job. Um, and I, I am struggling during this time. And so thinking about people who are parents, um, people who, you know, with, with the the back and forth about whether schools should open or not, and it's half term right now, and all of this swirling around, it really, and just the thought of you know taking on the emotional labor of a family or a household, and also the caring duties for children, and there was a, I think it was on the Guardian where they were saying like, even if you know a father in a in a heterosexual family is very involved children tend to default to go to a particular parent and that particular parent usually is the mother so whose zoom calls are going to be interrupted the most probably mummies um and so i think about this and my biggest concern is definitely the fact that a lot of women are having to step back because it is just overwhelming, and it's usually the person who is being paid the less, uh, the blah, being paid the least, <laughs> um, who has to step back from from their work, um, and that makes sense from a financial standpoint. You know, if your spouse uh, or partner is making more and you know, you have other things that need to be done, then it kind of makes sense in that way. But because of that, I really worry uh, people even stepping back doing part-time work. Um, and actually, you know, they say they're doing part-time work, but I still see them online at, you know, 10 PM, uh, still clacking away or on days when they're not meant to be working. It does really worry me because, um, when you're not at the table you're not learning you're not growing um and you miss out i mean forget about promotions it's just you're you're kind of not there and keeping up to date with what's what's going on and we already talk about this so much with women who take um maternity leave and how um it can be really really difficult to come back to work after having had a gap in your cv so my concern about this is that it will be much harder for women to reenter the workforce um, as we rebuild whenever that is in hopefully sooner rather than later. I think in terms of protecting themselves financially, I mean, I find myself hoarding. I feel like, um, like a hamster. Do you ever have a hamster as a kid? Like <laughs> that was my first ever pet. Um, I had a little hamster and, He was just a, he was such a cheeky little bugger. And, you know, they, they do this, all of them. They will, um, he loved yogurt chips. So we'd feed him yogurt chips and he would just stuff them into his mouth. Um, And so his little cheeks would be so puffed out with yogurt chips inside. Uh, Actually, when, when he died, (laughs) we found him with his mouth stuffed full of yogurt chips. And I feel like this little hamster right now, because I am squirreling away money left, right and center trying to save as much as I can. Um, and I'm lucky, right. I'm still very privileged that I'm working full time and, um, not going out as much, not paying for travel, um, not really doing anything. So I am able to put away more money, but I, I find myself like obsessively checking my savings account every single day, multiple times a day. I'm looking at it. I'm, and I find myself being quite, um, I was never anyone who would look at my investment apps. Like I've got a Robin hood in the States and my L account in the States. And I find myself checking it all the time and like actually watching it go up and down. And that, that has, that has added additional stress to my life Um, because when you see it, you know, go down, all of a sudden you start to panic. I think there, there will need to be, Um, some sort of government-led initiative because there's only so much that you can do as an individual. Um, And unfortunately, I mean, you know, this is not a government bashing podcast (laughs) or anything, but I think we've seen that the government has been a bit short-sighted when it comes to women um, and serving the women (laughs) in the population. Um, We saw that with, you know, Men were allowed to go get their beards cut, but women couldn't have their eyebrows done or whatever their hair done, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, I, I worry that with this government that it's not really being taken into account, um, that the strain that this is having on the female workforce. I hope though that looking at the numbers, they will, they will be pragmatic about it because the numbers do show that when women are in the workforce it's just better for, in in general for our overall economy so my hope is that there will be some sort of government-led initiative whether that's stimulus or otherwise um, to help women that have been put out of work yeah
2: then- And and that's so true. I mean, I I can't relate too much with a a hamster as I was more of a a feline pet uh, from childhood. And even today, as I am panicking that my cat is going to loudly wake up and meow at me. Um, On to our final question, what can the financial services industry do to foster a sense of trust and see more people of color and women and other marginalized groups investing more? I mean, I've seen bank after bank pledging money towards Narrowing the racial wealth gap but mm-hmm. do you think it's all just PR can it be achievable can we actually have a financial wealth gap narrowed down
1: this is such a tough one because I I am a hopeless romantic Sharon I am a hopeless romantic and I, I want to see the best in everyone mm. um, and uh, as I'm sure you're very aware and we've discussed you know The Black Lives Matter movement has been so dear to my heart and so important to me. And I have seen so many pledges, not just from banks, right? You've got like skincare companies coming out saying Black Lives Matter. And that's Mm. wonderful. Um, But actually putting your money where, is that right? What's the idiom? Put your money where your mouth is. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, this isn't my first language um, but that the the execution part is kind of what worries me, and i think I think what's interesting, and so I was chatting with with my pal uh my dear friend Harry Allner um about this, and she made a really, really great point, which was that in the previous crash, um the big one <laughs> ten years ago, the banks were the villains. Right, they were up to no good. They gotten they got themselves into a bit of trouble, and so there was a lot of trust eroded off the back of that. This time around, with coronavirus, this is this is a biological thing, right? This is a virus. This is not the fault of you know any one bank. It's it's not Barclays' fault. They're not sitting in Canary Wharf laughing at all of us. Um, they didn't plan this; they are also adapting, and so I think this time around, banks, financial institutions, fintech have an opportunity to step up to the plate and actually say, "We are going to help you. We're going to have a very human human humanity led approach towards financial services and we did see this um at the beginning of lockdown. I'm sure you recall the the mortgage breaks or mortgage holidays and um at Klarna, we had financial hardship policies that were immediately put into effect, and especially when it comes to lending, a lot of a lot of fintech companies were pivoting quite quickly, rising to the occasion. We saw Starling issuing bounce back loans quite quickly um, to small businesses in the UK. That was really great for them, I think, to start rebuilding trust. I think what is going to be Difficult is the fact of the uncertainty of the moment, right? So we talked about um, earlier the fact that, you know, uh, well, a bank is a bank. <laughs> and eventually that, that mortgage holiday will have to end. And that furlough scheme will have to end, as you as you brightly pointed out at the beginning, Sharon. And so the uncertainty of it is what worries me because we can uh, at the end of the day, the banks do have to make money (laughs) or a certain amount that's that's how they that's why they're there um and so it will be interesting to see how long they can be humanity led um and for the investment platforms how long they can get people to have faith and keep their money in their accounts under management uh before panicking you know so long term that's kind of, well, that's the short term. Longer term, looking at things like the racial wealth gap, um, and I, just to plug it because it's an it's incredibly well-researched uh, piece of work, the Running Me Trust uh, earlier this year released a report called The Color of Money, um, which also had just really shocking Uh, findings like the fact that Bangladeshi or black African families in the UK have 10 times less wealth than the average white British family, all these things came to light. And actually, as I said before, in the beginning, when we were talking about AML, this report actually does have actionable items um, where it says, do this, don't do this, that sort of thing. Um, I think it will be really interesting because it's not like anyone's handing out money right now. But I think it will take a systemic approach towards uh, positive change. So you can pledge a lot of money, um, and that can be pledging money towards Black-owned businesses, for example, which we've seen a lot um, in the States, here as well in the UK, um, and hope that that helps the community in general. But I think on the individual level, it will be really interesting to see how a bank can say, yes, we are committed towards closing the racial wealth gap. Yes, we are going to, uh, you know, yes, Black Lives Matter, wonderful. But how are you going to do that for the individual customer? That remains to be seen. And I'm, I'm racking my brain, like if I were sitting in a major bank, and trying to figure that out short of just actually handing out money. (laughs) I don't know how they plan to go about doing that right now. My hope is that they will, well, do two things. One, um, collect data, because you cannot measure something that is not, you know, you can't measure change if it's not being, um, the data is not being collected. Uh, So I really hope that, that everyone, all banks, all financial institutions, we will start in earnest um, gathering more data, sex disaggregated data, um, racially if applicable, if allowed in the circumstances to make sure that we can measure change. But then on top of it, as we move into a world that is increasingly Focused on artificial intelligence, um, machine learning and how many fintechs, do, I mean, you, you guys must have reported on so many of them who are like, yeah, yeah, we've got this great algorithm. Fine. Um, but have a look at these algorithms that are being built and go, are we baking in any preconceived notions? Are we baking in any of our biases, whether conscious or unconscious into the algorithms that are going to determine whether this family is going to be able to take out a mortgage? is that something that we have thought about have we thought about the ethical implications of these algorithms moving forward and are these going to move us towards a more equitable uh, financial system so that is my hope long term (laughs)
0: So we have reached part three of the show, and that means it's time for the fintech jail. Uh, Nina is going to submit an industry buzzword, phrase or term to Sharon and I, and then we will decide whether it should be locked away for good. As we mentioned last week, and keep mentioning, not everything is final in the fintech jail. Uh, according to last week, we apparently operate a string of institutions from Open Gate to Triple Max. Um, so, you know, <laughs> what what, uh, what term have you brought with you today that you, you think should be locked away for good, or or perhaps given an even harsher sentence than that?
1: So, one that I've been seeing a lot recently um, that I would like to put in the fintech jail is. Um, mission-focused as a phrase. Um, and this has kind of expanded beyond just um, just fintech, but uh, there have been, I think it was kind of brought up in the context of Coinbase um, and the idea that they are a mission-focused uh, company. And the reason I want it to be locked away in fintech jail is because... Um, Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? (laughs) Um, Say so. We're not. We're not child friendly. It's
2: it's fine. I mean, unless there is a very fintech and enthusiastic child out there, in which case, hello,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, cover your ears. No, I mean, yes, mission focused. No shit, Sherlock. We're all mission focused. It's it's kind of like when I, I. when people say, yes, we're a financial services firm and we use tech and you're like, right, yeah, but it's written on the tin. Um, every company has a mission, has a vision and is executing and focused on that. And so I really don't like um, the way that it's been used um, and co-opted and the, the political debate around it. I think that um, every, every company in every company even if you're like mcvitties you're mission focused you're making the best biscuits in the world right like that's your mission um everyone's mission focused so i would i personally would like to lock that one away please <laughs> I,
0: I think uh i mean i just want to first say other biscuits are available there are um, there are
1: and i <laughs> think mcvitties are the best in the world It Although just
0: Mc, mcvitties if you want to hit us up let us know hello uh, <laughs> yeah uh, I, well, I mean, yeah, mission focused. I mean, personally, I don't think I've come across it that often, but then I, I, I probably run in different circles, but I mean, it sort of brings me back to my, my days at secondary school at GCSE when the first thing we did for our coursework was defining a mission statement for our imaginary business. Okay. So, you know, if I was doing it at age 15, when I was, uh, you know, a roiling mass of, um, you know, teenage angst then i'm sure you know most companies will probably have their own mission mission focused uh mission statement or whatever uh, so i mean for me i mean yeah i don't see any reason why not what about you sharon
2: wow when you were 15 huh they were really getting you workplace ready <laughs> <laughs> they were not wasting any I, time I, got, I just
0: just for clarity just for clarity i got a d in, in that, so that wasn't exactly great. this is why this is why i'm a journalist and not a founder
2: Oh, your mission statement. What was it? Like, I don't know. I just had to have I wanted, a mission. <laughs> I wanted to
0: make a record store and I didn't, I, I just didn't go very well.
2: Oh, that's okay. You know what? You're here. You're technically doing something records based, you know? I mean, podcasting and journalism. That That's a record right there in some sense. So it's, it's cool for you. I'm going to go with yes, we can put this in the jail. I mean, I do not come across it like every day or all of the time. Mm. Um, But I do see it in these, um, for example, new fintechs, uh, and they have like their very standard, like Squarespace looking website. Like, oh, I, yeah. like everyone has this same template. Like, yeah, it's like all white, and there's like a, a bit of pastel happening, and then you just do a little scroll down thing. Like, oh, on other yeah. days of having tabs, and then like one of the one of the little like bits will be, oh, our mission is to blah, and our mission statement is to blah blah blah. And yeah, for me, it's it's boring because we all get it. Just, you know, just say at the top, you know, we're focused on, on this. It doesn't have to be, you know, calling it your, your mission as though that's a unique element. Everyone has that, as you mentioned, because that's what you're supposed to have as a business. Like that's what a business is. What are you, what are you focused on? You know? Yeah. All right. I would say let's, let's give this, uh, I'm going to give it 15 years, you know?
0: Oh my gosh. I know. Big one.
2: Yep, that's a big one. I mean, do you do you guys want to argue it down? I'm I'm feeling very. Uh...
0: No, I mean, I got I got no qualms with that. I mean, it, I I'm, I was going to say maybe we could could we chuck in those little image mock-ups of a mobile phone with the <gasps> apps dashboard on it in there as an accomplice to mission statement. Yes. I just, having reported on a few new banks in the past week or so, it's just the same picture the same mobile with a different dashboard on it each time. Yes. Oh. Yes.
1: Can I just say, as I'm going completely off piece here, I would like to start, Sharon, if you would like to join me, I would like to start a campaign to have more diversified hands in these.
2: <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Point. yes. And our editor in chief as well, Tanya will be absolutely bawling with laughter about that because she does make that point. Yes. There needs to be more diverse hands. If you are working with Adobe or Pexels or whatever photo stock, please hit me up. I don't have great hands. They've often been called sausage fingers, but you know what? They will still hold a phone. Okay. I
1: have brown hands and, <laughs> and I'm usually manicured. So hit me yeah. up, open <laughs> hand modeling. <let's>, yeah. Yes, <laughs> let's we are available. Hand hands. Oh my God, that could be our side
2: hustle. We can have a whole thing of like side hustle hands. I love it. Hands for supplies, like like Joey from Friends.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Hand models, love it. Sorry, I went off piece there, everyone. No,
2: that's perfectly fine. Mission statement, you're you're barred. And so is uh, the mobile phones with it too. Goodbye. (laughs) Bye bye.
0: Well, that's all we have time for for this episode. Thanks to Sharon and Nina for joining me. But before we sign off, uh, give everyone a chance to plug socials, websites, ventures and things like that. Nina, you're our guest. Uh, what, what would you like to plug?
1: Yeah, well, I'm I'm Nina Mohanty. You can find me uh, usually sending way too much on Twitter at Nina Mohanty. Uh, feel free to DM me if you like. And also new plug. If you are um, an angel investor, please do get in touch, um, as I am working with some really wonderful women who are putting together um, a group of angel investors that are focused on investing in marginalized founders.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Okay, Sharon, what about you? Where can we find you online and what are you up to?
2: You can find me at Fintech Kits. That's Fintech the way you regularly spell it. And kits like, you know, sportswear kits.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Love it.
2: <laughs> and um, so, yes, you can find me on there and also on LinkedIn. Um, and I think I will be posting up a recent webinar that I was involved in. So um, if you would like to see my face as well as hear my voice that you regularly hear on this podcast then go and check it out go and check that webinar out it's going to be on payments so for all you paytech fans that's for you you know there you go it's all about merchants and stuff Uh, so so, so check it out Um, and also um, check out our paytech because I'm all paytech crazy this time Uh, so paytech supplement check it out. It's going to be on the website by the time this podcast comes out. So do scroll on our website and find it, please.
0: Brilliant. Uh, And you can find me on Twitter at adhamilton91 and on LinkedIn by searching my name. A couple of things. uh, I probably feel obligated to plug i was at i did a panel at lend at fintech europe which would, by the time this comes out will probably be last month so go and check that out about whether fintech has been really disruptive or not it was a 20 minute panel so pretty rapid fire uh, it's not one of those one hour ones that, that tend to drag on uh and then uh also by the time this comes out probably uh the october uh fintech futures report into customer engagement and experience will be out that was a interesting deep dive into the industry for me uh went into it thinking it was fairly simple uh like we were talking about pastel colors scrollable websites out there's actually a lot more to customer engagement than meets the eye so uh check that out on the fintech futures website as well and As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com to find all those things Sharon and I have just been talking about. On Twitter, it's at Fintech Futures and on LinkedIn, just by searching Fintech Futures and looking for our gorgeous logo. Help us to become the largest fintech group on LinkedIn. We're nearly there. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service. And We'd also always really appreciate it if you give Other listeners help finding the podcast by writing a review or recommending us to a friend, a founder, an angel investor, anyone really. Uh, We thank you very much for your support. Um, We'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye.